Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 340. What the fuck is Kishchis? And welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. Eddie, I want to start with you. I had a, a phrase someone once told me. It's this person. He's, he's a little bit of an arrogant asshole, but he's a nice, nice guy all around. He had this rule where he said, always take a good team after a loss. And, you know, it, it just comes to mind that, you know, you are debating your survivor pick and the Bills are obviously a good team coming off a loss, and I'm assuming that you didn't take the Bills, right? <laughs> you know I didn't take the Bills. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long lead up to just put you down. Because we discussed this. I mean, look, it's going to kill me for a while because, as you know, originally I was just like, oh, I'm taking the Bills. That was last Monday. If you had asked me who I was taking, it was the Bills. And then I decided to get a little bit smarter and think this is the only time I'm going to take the Ravens. And I went for that pick. Whereas the original plan that you both were aware of was I kind of felt like I was getting to that stage where it was just now play the big guns and and try and run everyone out of town. And that would have worked really well this weekend because a few more people would have gone out. I think so so there were 80 left. I think 15 other people took the Ravens on Thursday night. So already that's a sizable chunk gone. And then a few the people had to be a lot. The Bucks were a few. Been a lot. The Steelers the were the most as well. The Steelers were the most popular pick, and they somehow managed to survive because you go through even with a tie. So, yeah, I'm I'm going to be kicking myself for a while on that one because it does feel like I wasn't. Yeah, I was probably in the strongest position of the 80 people left with the teams I had at my disposal. So that kind of sucks. Well, that's I mean, and it's it's literally what we were talking about week in week out is like you were playing the smart move by taking the lesser valued teams to save them. But it was always like, when do you start striking then with those teams? And but it let's was be fair. Honestly, <laughs> the, well, Ravens, obviously, but the Ravens are a good team. Are a good it's team. True. So it's, it's not it's like true. I over, it's not like I overthought it this week as well and took someone weird. And then I'm kicking myself because I continued with that. I felt like I was playing one of the big guns. I just felt like this was the only time I was going to play them. And then they had their worst performance of the season. I mean, they were I will say, though, yeah. I was going to open this up with not that phrase of taking a good team after a loss, but your other known phrase is never take Thursday night. And that obviously played into it as well, because they were clearly the better team, but you had that weird Thursday night scenario where maybe they weren't ready or rested or something. And that probably affected the Ravens there. Maybe. Maybe and uh, and they were coming off a, a, an overtime Sunday night the, game, right? Sunday night overtime yeah. game the week before, so obviously it was as short of a week as they were pretty much going to get. So there's some logic there, but the Dolphins aren't good. To be honest, I kind of knew I was in trouble when when Jacoby Brissett went out, and there was there was that feeling that the Ravens didn't look good, but that the Dolphins also looked really bad, and it looked like the Ravens were just going to be able to kind of grind their way through a past a bad team. And in that mode, even though I'm not a huge Tua fan, you just don't want to change the factor of the quarterback because you don't want someone else coming in who maybe is having a slightly better day. And not that Tua was great. I mean, 
the plays that he made were on blown coverages, so pretty much anyone could have completed the passes he did. And the Ravens just had two monster blown coverages on big downs. But yeah, it sucks. But next year. I mean, realistically, you picked a team that was nine point favorites. So it was hardly, this is all hindsight talking, right? They've come up with a loss. It sucks. But you're picking a nine point favorite team. It's the, hardly... Yeah. The thing that kills me about it is Monday, Tuesday, I was going to take the bills. I was so close to sending the email I, in our like group chat that we had. Previously, I was sending my pick in on Tuesday morning, like as soon as the lines are out. And I even joked with with Frank and our friend Tim in our group chat that I'm not going to do that because of the COVID factors, which for obviously everyone who submitted the Steelers, they must have been really worried that that was the big storyline of the weekend, that COVID might be the thing that sort of derailed their pick. But it just hurts. If I'd been thinking the Ravens all week and I'd lost on the Ravens, I actually wouldn't have been that bothered. But the fact that I really was very close to pulling the trigger on the Bills, and I think deep down I knew that was the play. So to then watch the Ravens lose on the Thursday and then watch the Bills just cruise through on Sunday, it sucked. Yeah, it all, I mean, I was also hurting watching the Bills cruise through and thinking where the hell was this last week and I could still be in this and I'm sure people who had picked the Cowboys were thinking the same thing when yeah. they watched the Cowboys absolutely dismantle exactly. you know like where the hell was which this is, last week which is <laughs> which is why you can't overthink something like a survivor because you're right like everyone the vast majority of people who got knocked out the week before was on the Bills and the Cowboys and then the versions of those teams that they expected to turn up seven days before turned up this week and you would be equally frustrated by that as the decision that I made if not, maybe more. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that, if this is this season or if it's one of those things where we're just looking at it through a, like a lens right now and we're not seeing the bigger picture, but it just feels like this year there's been so many random heavy underdog wins, hmm. you know, like the, the bills and the Cowboys losing last week, uh, you know, this week the Bucks were what ten point favorites, eleven point favorites, and losing. You know, and then when you look at how crazy it is, you know, like the Jets beat the Titans, and then the Bills beat the Titans, but then the Bill, you know, or like the or the Titans beat the Bills, but then the Bills beat the Jets by thirty five. You know, it's like so crazy when you think about how how strange some of these outcomes are. Yeah, I think. I think the thing is that early in the season, there were basically no surprising outcomes. Up until that Titans losing to the Jets, if you think about it, you could have thrown every heavy favorite in a money line, you know, accumulator or parlay, whatever you want to call it, and it was winning every week. So I think that did two things. One, it meant that the lines were driven higher and higher, because obviously from the bookmaker standpoint, a team that maybe would have been an eight-point favorite, and you start to get the feel feeling that there is a huge disparity within the league and they can't just get killed week in week out on people either doing a tease or just taking money line favorites. So the lines have all been driven a bit higher than they probably should have been. And then equally over the course of a season, you're just going to have a certain number of upsets. And because we basically had none in the first five or six weeks, then they happen more frequently now for the next couple of weeks. And that's probably compounded by the fact that you then have other factors like the occasional player being out with COVID or the fact that there's an extra game this season. So maybe teams are taking their eye off the ball sometimes and sort of 
managing things differently than they would do in a in a 17 week season but it's also been the it's been these things where the explosive teams have stopped being explosive pretty suddenly as well. And then you've got these terrible defense teams that suddenly will have this one game like the Jaguars, you know, when they restricted the bills to six and then the bills come out, you know, the following time and put 45 on the board. Same with the bucks, right? They, they have these times where they'll just absolutely blow someone out of the water. Then they can't go over 20 against a really poorly performing defense. And it's like, I think that's the most frustrating part is if some of these losses were close, it wouldn't be it would be fine but then when you start seeing like even when you look at like the patriots when it was like a, what two and a half point favorites then it's a 32 point win or whatever it was or a 35 point win it just seems to be that the extremes of the upsets are more frustrating because then the following week they do exactly it as you mentioned with like the cowboys yeah i do i definitely think there are more it almost feels like teams are giving up more over the course of games so I think a little bit like the Browns. Now, the Browns was kind of a perfect storm. You had the two running backs out again because of COVID. And then you have Baker Mayfield go out mid-game, admittedly at a stage of the game where the game is over anyway. They should have t- really taken him out earlier just because he's coming into the games with injuries. So why do you even have him playing when the game's already over? Well, a case but... can be made while he'll even play anymore. <laughs> Should he still be the QB one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to assume he's not playing this week, right? I don't. I haven't really read much about his injury, but they have an easy game this week, so there's a possibility that their offense starts to look kind of good with Keenum, and then you just decide. The thing that's difficult for them is their rights; they're still in the playoff hunt. Yeah, you know, there's all these teams that are feel like they're having bad seasons, and I'm going to throw the Niners in there. I know how much you love it ahead of this game against the Rams today, but there are all these teams where you just think, ah, you kind of came into it feeling like you're going to need to go have 10 wins to make the playoffs. Now it might turn out you only need eight because everyone's beating each other and everyone's slipping up and divisional races that look like they were over a couple of weeks ago are suddenly wide open again. Yeah, like look at the Chiefs, look at the, like you say, look at the Browns one as well. Um, but also it's it's that perception of how quickly it changes with the way the winning records look. Like everyone was just assuming the Bucks were going to come out of this bye week at seven and two, right? They've gone at six and three and suddenly it just brings them down to that pack where there's like seven or eight other teams. You know, the Titans are there. I think the Colts are there as well. So there's loads of teams that the Bucks are better than, but are still on the same record. And it's just making it crunched in the middle especially kind of the AFC side of things as well with like the Chiefs coming back up as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I, I'm not, I'm not going to rush to it yet. I, I, we talked about it with our predictions, you know, the Raiders can only hold on for so long with the team with so much just going on in disarray that you knew eventually the bottom was going to drop out and maybe this is the first game. So, but still putting up 41 and looking very efficient in their offense and finally accepting the fact that they can't just throw the ball 30 yards down the field every play and are going to have to pick apart defenses with five yard passes and 10 yard passes. And, and I watched, you know, the first half of that and they were doing that really well. And Mahomes was okay with it. Whereas he wasn't trying to force the ball down the field, but whether they're going to do that that the whole time is, is questionable. That scoreline also flattered them. 
the you had weird turnovers, you had missed interceptions from the Raiders. So there was that that game was a lot closer than it ended up looking when you see the final score. Yeah. I think they only punted once not, though, right? The first drive. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But I mean, you know, we had that conversation a few weeks ago where we talked about what is the Chiefs best possible uh you know uh, re- sort of results over the remainder of the season, we predicted them to go 500 pretty much from there on in. They've won all three of those games, I think, since we made that, because I was going into the Giants Monday night football game. Obviously, things are made easier for them with Aaron Rodgers being out against the, with the Packers, the Raiders just being in total disarray going into this game. If they beat the Cowboys this Sunday, there is a chance that they could run the table. Because you then look at their schedule, the Broncos are not very good. The Raiders still will be in disarray for that week. The Chargers look worse and worse each week. The Steelers aren't particularly good. The Bengals are also seem to be getting worse. And then they finish with the Broncos. So from going from a season where it looked like they might do well to, to go 500 the rest of the season, suddenly now it's harder to find where they're going to lose games. Now I'm sure that their problems will raise their ugly head again between now and the end of the season and they'll have some surprising loss to the Broncos or whoever it is but certainly now I think you have to pencil them in to the playoffs certainly yeah for sure and when you look at it as well like we spoke about kind of the Broncos and is this the one where they're going to be found out because they're a pretty bad team lo and behold very much were against the Eagles you've got the Raiders in disarray suddenly like three or four games ago that was looking like a tough division right that was going to be tough for the Chiefs to do anything with because a lot of the teams were just playing a little bit better than them but now all of a sudden it looks like one of the easiest divisions to come out of in a weird way yeah what's crazy is looking at it uh just looking at the early lines the over under for the Chiefs Cowboys game is 56 and that is six points higher than the next over under for that week but that still seems very low to me. I feel like that's extremely low. And 56 is still significantly higher than any other over-unders for that week. <laughs> With the 50 being the Cardinal Seahawks is the next one at 50. And they're at 56. But I mean, I could easily see that game being 45-42 game-winning field goal at the end. <laughs> Before well, actually now, before we continue, what did you say the Cardinal Seahawks over under was? Fifty. How on earth did they pick that How? number? <laughs> Are they predicting that the Cardinals will score fifty points? I don't understand. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a strange line. Uh, that's crazy. I mean, are but, they expecting Murray back for that game? Like just to just to try and put some kind you of credit to, assume, to that fifty. You have to assume they're bringing him back just because they need to stop the slide at some point too. I mean, I guess they're assuming Murray and Hopkins are back, and then their defense plays the way they did last week or on Sunday, which wasn't very good. And if you can give the Seahawks seventeen points, the Cards might be able to pick up the rest. <laughs> but for for me, the most disappointing thing on Sunday was that Browns Patriots game. One, because I'm not a believer in the Patriots, and that might have proved me wrong. And two, I was still a slight believer in the Browns. And they came out that opening drive, looked great that opening drive. I mean, just cruised down the field, scored the touchdown, and you thought, okay, 
Browns look good. Now their defense is going to step up and shut down this rookie QB. And I don't know what the hell happened the rest of that game. I mean, I think the thing is you're really wrong on the Patriots. I think the Patriots are good to pretty good. And that's where you're. So I think, yeah, the Browns, I think the Browns will still make the playoffs and they'll be a difficult team to beat in the playoffs if they're healthy. The big question with them is Browns team is going to make the playoffs. These last few weeks, they have not looked good. That offense. They kind of, they kind of alternate now at the moment, but I think they'll make the playoffs. I did see that stat about Mac Jones is on pace to break um, Dak Prescott's kind of rookie record for completions. It's like, you know, something's happening there. They've got some pretty good kind of pairings going on. They're scoring well. They're scoring much better than they were. And they're still winning those kind of low scoring games. Now they're winning high scoring games. I, I think they're in it. <laughs> I, I think they're in with a good playoff run here, the Patriots. Well, the real question is, can they win the division? Because they've yet to play the Bills. So they're a game behind, but they haven't played the Bills yet. So they have every chance of actually overtaking the Bills if they can put in good performances in those games. So, Eddie, I was thinking, now that we've seen Mac Jones for, what is this, nine, ten games, you were firmly in the Trey Lance, not Mac Jones camp for the Niners pick. Are you having any slight hesitation or still way too early to make any judgment? I'm not going to go so far as to say I've had second thoughts. Mac Jones has looked a lot better than I expected he would do. At the same time, he's going into a great situation. That Patriots team is pretty good, and you have arguably the greatest coach in the history of the NFL. So... It doesn't surprise me that he's looked competent. And coming out of Alabama, I kind of expect their quarterbacks to be competent and sort of pro-ready. And we haven't seen enough of Trey Lance yet to make that judgment. So that's the kind of decision you make three seasons in. I'm not willing to call it right now. But certainly Mac Jones has looked better than I would have expected. And Does it? Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, does it actually speak volumes for the Trey Lance pick if they can? Because, you know, these these scouts, these people are very intelligent. They've got all the numbers in front of them. Maybe they thought that Mac Jones would be kind of more immediately good because of his position. But does it speak volumes for the fact that they still went with Trey Lance, maybe, and speaks maybe for the potential? I mean, that's a real Sam Glass. (laughs) That's a real Sam Glass half full. If this guy is good, imagine how good the guy is. Imagine the good we haven't really seen yet. Uh, So, yeah, you could spin it that way. And and look, they they definitely have, it's Trey Lance with the project pick. I think no one would have said otherwise. You're talking about a guy who had, what, seven college appearances or something like that? So you're picking, you knew that you're taking a guy who it's going to take more time to get him up to speed than Mac Jones. That bit's not surprising. But Mac Jones, it's not inconceivable to imagine Mac Jones being a top five NFL quarterback in the next five or six years. So if he is, then that trade up looks terrible because they could have taken Mac Jones where they were. Yeah. So you never know. But I mean, look, the draft is a it's a crapshoot at the best of times. I don't think you can kill people too much for getting getting things wrong and certainly I'm not going to judge it until it's 
you know, a handful of seasons into each of their respective careers. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you're a Giants fan, then you can rip into how bad they draft. <laughs> I looked back. I just looked back on the other one that went the year they took Barkley. They took Barkley and then Will Hernandez as their guard in the second round. They could have alternatively took in, taken Quentin Nelson with the second pick, who is now arguably top three guards in the in the NFL. <laughs> and then Bradley Chubb in the second round, who right now is a much better running back than Barkley is. So uh, it's there. The Giants are the worst at drafts. But yeah, I, I think you have to give it more time. What What is interesting is you're starting to hear rumblings, not that he is the next Wait, Bradley, Tom Brady. Bradley Chubb or Nick Chubb? Sorry, Nick Chubb. The running back, okay. sorry. Because, I mean, it's a bold statement to say that Bradley Chubb is... I mean, arguably, Brad, Bradley Chubb is a better running back at the moment than Saquon Barkley because <laughs> he can play games. Yeah. <laughs> he can actually sorry. move around. I got my Chubb mixed up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there have been rumblings. Not that he is the next one, but right now in his first season as the Patriots starter... He's starting off better than Brady did when he stepped in in the Patriots role in terms of touchdowns, interceptions, efficiency, wins. Um, he right now is off to a better start than Brady was, who came in in his second season. So who knows who uh, they've who got. Who knows, right? Who knows? He looks pretty good. And there's, a, I think... The thing is, I just have a lot of faith in the Patriots organization as a whole because basically the Patriots have been good for virtually our entire lifetime uh, in, in, in the sense of being old enough to remember football teams. So it, it's not weird for us to think that, to believe that Belichick, you know, it's only in the last couple of seasons where we've really seen them struggle. So I assume that Belichick will get his quarterbacks to work. I mean, the, the real question will be, He's going to have to spend a sizable chunk of his career without Belichick. And I'm I'm not saying, not kind of reopening that Belichick versus Brady argument because I think it was a combination of the two of them, the greatest coach in the history of the NFL with one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. And that's a perfect storm for having a dynasty, multiple dynasties. But what will the Patriots look like post-Belichick? Because every time someone from within the Patriots organization goes elsewhere, they fail miserably. And well, whoa, whoa, whoa. except like a... Mike Vrabel, even though okay. you are not a fan of the Titans, <laughs> I might have to, I might have to change my tune on the Titans. I got to say, I think they're good. I think they're good, but okay. Aside from Vrabel, and I guess Flores in Miami has done all right. All right. <laughs> but everywhere else, it's pretty much been a bit of a disaster. His son looks like a total psycho on the sidelines. God, that he is that person who is looks the way he does, so he gets that weird attention. That's a deliberate, I want to be the weird guy, and it's so annoying. It is so annoying. Like, come on, dude. Be a human being. Cut your fucking ugly mullet. It's also compounded, right, by the fact that his dad is kind of that guy in a weird way, you know, like with the cutoff hoodie sleeves and stuff. Like his dad has elements of that, but within an otherwise functioning human being and also has established his own reputation. So 
his weirdness, you get to accept it because it's just him Belichick being Belichick. But when you're the son of the really famous, super successful person, and then you've decided, hey, you know, my dad's weirdness, I'm going to multiply that by five without any of the proof that I have any of the same skills or qualifications. That's when it, like, I don't need cuts to the sidelines every game where he's weirdly sticking his tongue out and just, I mean, just looks like a complete psycho. So I, I don't have many other talking points from the NFL. I think it was a pretty, not standard week, but you know, the teams that should have won, won pretty comfortably. Um, but my one that I did want to discuss at least just a little is the Lions. And you just have to start feeling bad for them at this point. I mean, you look at the Jets and they're a terrible team and they don't deserve to win games and they've won games and then other games they look like they're not even putting in effort. And I don't mean just the players, the coaches, everyone, even the fans, like no one's putting in effort. But then you watch the Lions and here's a team who is still trying as hard as they can and just grinding it out and having to play in a shitty, wetty game in overtime, just trying to find a win and still just can't freaking win. You just feel so bad at a point for this team. Like, y- you want them to win so bad. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also one of those things where Detroit kind of gets overlooked as the cities where it would be really bad to be a sports fan. Just because I think for whatever reason, people mention... Because, again, they've been okay. I mean, the Pistons, obviously, have been successful in the Red Wings. Football-specific, though, the Lions have made the playoffs, and they've had okay seasons. They've also had seasons where they haven't won a game. For the most part, they I, I don't know in our lifetime what the most memorable Lions moment is. It's hard to really think of what would be, if I was a Lions fan, what would be the, oh, yeah, that was a great day. and. So I felt sorry for them. The Steelers were doing everything they could to to lose that game. And then the Lions were doing everything they could to not win it. It was a weird, a weird game to watch. I don't know what happened to that Lions kicker on that attempted field goal. I don't understand it for the life of me, how it just a complete mishit. I mean, I'm guessing his foot must have caught the ground before hitting the ball. That's the only thing I could have. Worst attempt I've ever seen. And that, you know, and that is the Lions right there, right? You know, you, you get some breaks finally in it, like what you're saying, and the Steelers should have won, but you weird breaks, turnovers, things like that. You get the ball, you drive down a little bit, and now you've got a very makeable field goal for the win. And you get instead the worst kicked field goal in the NFL this year. It was as if one of us lined up to just try and see how far we could kick the ball and made it. 10 yards short of the goal line, you know? Like. I mean, I'll say this genuinely. I know I have my already my claim to fame that I could kick a ball to hit the roof of a stadium. I could kick a field goal better than that. Now, I'm not saying put into the under the lights and the pressure. Obviously, that guy is way better at kicking field goals than I would be. I still think the overall standard of field goal kicking and punting in the NFL is really, really bad. But no, you're right. Overall, it was a weekend that sort of pretty much went to plan obviously ravens aside and and i guess you'd say bucks aside everything else pretty much went as expected and then the close games maybe weren't always close but but no it was uh i was sick this weekend 
So in addition to watching the NFL, managed to also binge watch Squid Game. Oh, I'm still on like episode four, three or four. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to ruin anything. I got to say my takeaway was I don't know how the world became obsessed with this TV show. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine, but it does not deserve the level of attention that it got. Well, it's like when people became obsessed with Joe Exotic. And it's just a bunch of Oklahoma redneck idiots that own tigers and lions. You know, it's you watch that and you're just like, well, I don't get, I never got it like other people did. You know, it just wasn't the obsession that I saw. <laughs> and then you got gems like this podcast that just don't get the same level of attention. When's yeah. our Squid Game moment going to come? Sam, you might need to like poke one of your eyes out live on camera or something just to help us get there. The the premise of Squid Game is that what is it? All these people enter these don't series ruin of it. games. Don't ruin it. Spoiler. Because spoiler. Of, because of because of <laughs> debt or something like that. The they try to pay is, off debt, right? The premise is that they are all people who are heavily in debt, and that this group has found identified people with massive financial problems, and then invites them to take part in childhood games to win with dire money. consequences. <laughs> yes. So it's not it's not the people they owe money to that they are doing this for. It is a separate you're being invited on a kind of game show to win the money to allow you to pay off your debt and more. Kind of sounds interesting enough. Sounds like a great proposition. Can I sign up? <laughs> How much debt would you need, Frank, to consider it? No, no, it's not how much debt. It's how <laughs> much money could you... Oh, in rea- in, how much money... So did you... The end sum of money I looked up, it depends a little bit because obviously we're dealing in South Korean currency. But I looked up with what the final prize sum, the total pool is. It roughly equates to between like 40 and sort of $60 million, depending on what the exchange rates are. So it's a, it's a decent chunk of money. (laughs) I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would do that for $40 million. Do they, again, just say if this is spoiler territory, but do they know they're going into these deadly games or is it dire consequences, Sam? Yeah, but are they told that? They don't read the blurb of the game before they go in the game. The first game, no. But from that moment onwards, yes. So I I think arguably the first time you go into play it, you think that you're playing a children's game where you lose and you're out. And then it turns out to be much more serious than that. Dire. (laughs) (laughs) Much more dire. But, But from that point on, you do know. So, I don't know. I think I could sign up for a game like that, but it would have to be a lot more money. And I think I'd probably need to... I think I'd want to have a better idea. I'm trying to think of childhood games I played and how good I would be at them now. Because that's the other thing I'd have to consider. I was really good at Foursquare. That was our, Do you guys have that game where it was four squares and a bouncy ball, and then you'd have to hit the oh, yeah. ball into the person's square? 
I mean, I was a kid in the U.S., so yeah. Frank. <laughs> well, maybe Sam didn't. <laughs> I didn't. No, no. In exactly. fairness, I want to. I I didn't know about it. <laughs> okay, so that would be a childhood game. I'm guessing it's things like hide and seek, maybe, or stuff like that. Like, so the first game, for example, is Red Light, Green Light. Oh, that's the one where you kind of freeze, isn't it? Yeah, the, there's someone who's if you played it as a kid, it's like stands with their back to a wall. They're f- facing a wall, and then when they turn around, you have to stop so they don't see you move. And if they see you move, you're eliminated. But you have to reach them to make it through. But then there was a lot of games that are pretty Korean, so <laughs> that, that also <laughs> that also kind of removed it for me in terms of why I enjoyed it less. Because then you're like, I have no idea what this game is, so. I would be, uh, I would be screwed. Like they would literally be like, "Now we're going to play this," and be like, "I've got no idea." Uh, can, explain can the-, the rule book, please. <laughs> Even after they explain the rules, sometimes I was like, "I still don't totally get what it is I got to do." But <laughs> you can imagine Eddie is the most like frustrating person they invited on. He's like, "Sorry, I, I don't get what's going on. <laughs> can I have like a rule book to look through? Can I speak to someone like a manager?" Oh, they would have just shot me. So what does two whistles mean <laughs> again? <laughs> nah, I just get shot in between games at one moment. That's not very fun. <laughs> Tug of War would have been all right. That one. Did you play Kish Chase? No. <laughs> oh, this, could, this could explain a lot here. <laughs> explain <laughs> what Kish Chase is. <laughs> there used to be a game called Kish Chase where people would run around and it's kind of like I think another way of putting it would be called like Stuck in the Mud but the way Stuck you... in the Mud is the follow up that's like the, <laughs> for the more advanced players Yeah, it's for the people who decided like oh I like kissing a girl I like kissing a guy the Stuck yeah. in the Mud's the next one <laughs> yeah. once you've graduated from Kiss Chase you, you get stuck in the mud <laughs> <laughs> but that was just the idea that you would unfreeze someone by kissing them. Not like making out with them. It would be a peck on the cheek. We're like nine years old. <laughs> like we have no concept. But yeah, that's how it would work. So freeze tag, but instead you're sexually harassing someone in the process. Oh, you're sexually freeing them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, can't even, I, I think I barely played it, which may explain something. But um, yeah, that was a thing. Kiss chase. And just to, not that I, was that exclusively at your school, as in you had only, people only kiss people of the opposite sex? I think it was at primary school, which would have been like between five and 10 years old. So it was a mixed school. Um, No, I just think you just, I think it was just opposite sex. Yeah. Now, the more I think about it. The more I realize it, like, could you imagine this school, like the people, like the parents coming to pick them up and I mean, just see everyone running around? I couldn't imagine that game in the US. Like, I couldn't imagine the backlash after the first day that game was played, the parents just storming in to the principal's office in the US. Oh, here I we go. More. Here we go. I Kiss think... Chase, a children's I... game similar to tag, the object being for the person who is it to catch and kiss another one of the participants who then subsequently becomes it. So it is a little bit harassing. Okay. Yes. It's tag yes. with your lips. It's literally what it it's is. It's just like, yeah, it's just like training rapists. 
Yeah, I like Urban Dictionary says a horrifically traumatizing game as played by primary and junior school children. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine playing that as a child. I can't imagine in one of my schools that taking place. No. More to the point, I can't imagine the beatings I would have received had I suggested that as a game. <laughs> if I had, if it had been recess and people like, what are we going to play? Uh, you know, like uh, British Bulldog or, I mean, what's British Bulldog? Games. British, oh, British Bulldog. Bulldog's fun. You just have a have a ball, and it's it's kind of no holds barred, just people running into each other. Just you're trying to grab the ball. There's kind of no rules, and there's also kind of no por- purpose to it. Fundamentally, it is just two teams tackling and running into each other, and just so, jumping on top of each other. Like the closest kill, thing to a rule was to ball. get to the. You had to get to the other side, didn't you? I, I think that was the idea. Like untouched. Or something pretty brutal. I mean, it was yeah. It was trying. It was kind of like rugby to a certain extent, but I'm, I, I mean, in the U.S., the version of it that I played, which was the closest, would have been smear the queer. Been, oh, oh, no. oh Eddie, 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 and been... we are canceled. <laughs> Wait, that was a thing. I mean, that, yeah, that was like you're it, and and everyone tried to tackle you. We just Did called you, it "kill the man with the ball." We weren't we weren't that homophobic. Like, oh, oh thank you, thank you, Frank. <laughs> that sounds much nicer. <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely called "smear the queer" for me. <laughs> but yeah, it was just it's it's like reverse tag, basically. It's you against everyone, and you're just trying to avoid getting beaten into a pulp because you're holding onto a ball. We had some terrible ones, though, too, in gym class. The worst one we probably had was Pillow Polo. That was where it was kind of like hockey, but you played them with really giant Q-tips, if you can imagine it. Like American Gladiator style Q-tips? Yes, kind of like that, but it served as a hockey stick with like a with a ball, okay. and you would have to kind of like hit it, but it was just so inefficient. It never worked. So it ended up just everyone just crushing each other with the with the sticks, just like full on American Gladiator hitting each other in in the face and stuff. <laughs> and P, it was pretty good, I will say. As a kid, I mean, we just played conventional sports basically as as for as long as I could remember, and then you just ran, you kind of like ran it through them all from handball to floor hockey. First time I ever got punched was in playing floor hockey when I was in fourth grade, I think. Guy decked me, knocked me out because he wasn't happy that my team won. Wow. Did you ever play crab hockey? Where you're on like a little, almost like a square skateboard. You have to like sit on the skateboard and it's like one inch off the ground. (laughs) That game was frustrating. Yeah. Who makes these variations of hockey? <laughs> Probably PE teachers get bored teachers. as hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And who also realize that the thing that sucks about being a PE teacher for people at that age, or I guess it really at any age, you just have this huge difference in interest levels and athletic ability. So anything you can do to kind of limit those factors. So it'd be like, oh, well, if we just have all the kids who are biggest, strongest, fastest, just destroy everyone else in normal hockey, if we make them all slide around on crates, 
then the bad kids don't seem so bad because they kind of just get in the way and the good kids can't be quite as good. In our, in our like kind of at secondary school when we used to do sports, the way they got around that was by creating almost like sets, like tiers. So like the people who are really good at rugby would be in set one of rugby, set two, and then obviously set two, set three. And it just got to the point where like you would be shamelessly put in set three and just watching them play rugby was almost like a game in itself because no one wanted to play it. It was less to do with athletic ability. It was more to do with like care. And so you had this PE teacher trying to motivate people to play like rugby or football or something like that. And it just was, it was kind of funny to watch. I won't lie. That didn't happen to me until I was like 11 or 12. That's when they started to separate a little bit on ability. When I was young, it was the opposite. They were trying to balance the teams. So they were always trying to put a couple of kids who they knew would really try against each other. That's how I ended up getting into that. That's when Andy Sherman punched me. <laughs> Have you ever tried to find him again? Hunt him down? Retribution? Yeah, he killed no, him. No, but you know, he punched him. <laughs> yeah, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> remember me uh, <laughs> remember me asshole <laughs> no i don't <laughs> no, do you, you know he punched me and then the next day his mother made him give me flowers it was very weird what kind of flowers uh, i can't remember that but i remember because <laughs> you just punched him in the face me. with the flowers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was very strange though i mean i just gave them to my mother but it was very weird yeah I, i'll never forget we had one year we had a really good gym class. Uh, Furlong was in that class and it was probably eight or 10 guys that were super competitive and very athletic. And then about eight or 10 girls that were also pretty athletic and pretty competitive. So you would always have a large set of teams that were really good. And those were intense gym sessions. Those were so much fun. We'd get so into it. There would be a fight every three every three or four days just over like arguing about winning and things like that. That was always so fun. Yeah, I kind of miss PE. I'd like it if I, I still, still have it. I have intramural sports at, at the university. Yeah, it's not this yeah, that's as that's as close as you're gonna get, but I'd like it if like my office was just like, Hey, twice a week we make you play sports. <laughs> Random <laughs> sports. We just decide. Pick up basketball today. I mean, we kind of have done that on work retreats and stuff, but yeah, I would be interested to see. would really change the dynamic with a lot of people in the office. Yeah, get back to bullying. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie's in a meeting. You better agree with me. We've got basketball in two hours. (laughs) (laughs) We got Smear the Queer coming up. (laughs) And you've got queer written all over you. Yeah, you know, looking back on sports stories from last week, though, speaking about people getting attacked and bullied, a storyline that we did not discuss at all. I don't know if each of you saw this, but uh, was PSG's women's team midfielder, Aminata Diallo, who was arrested for hiring masked men to injure France and PSG teammate Kira Hemraou. I have definitely butchered possibly both of their names, certainly one of them. I thought it was an interesting move. I don't know how on earth. So the logic behind it was that she wanted more playing time as she was frustrated at being behind her in the pecking order. 
I do not know how you think you're ever going to get away with it. I, I don't know how you... How is that the default? How is that, like, the starting point for I'm going to get more playing time? Because most people would say, like, talk to a manager, understand what I can do on the training pitch to do something. This this is an escalation. <laughs> but you can't hire people. If you're going to do this, you need a really good friend of yours who is willing to just beat the shit out of someone in the street. Like, that is the... <laughs> I mean, that's the only way you're going to get away with it. Because as soon as you're hiring people, you are running the risk that they decide that they're going to get more out of it from coming clean than they are from actually doing the job. So you need a really good friend who's willing to do it. You cannot, you can't outsource a job like this. So did Tanya Harding do it right or no? I guess kind of. She did it better. She didn't get. She didn't go to prison, right? Mm. Yeah. How did she not? No, because I. I think she just wasn't. Because she actually wasn't involved. Suppose that's the the story is that it wasn't her that orchestrated it. It was the manager that orchestrated it. She pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution, and she negotiated a plea bargain, ensuring no further prosecution. And was given three years probation, a hundred thousand dollar fine, five hundred hours of community service, and had to reimburse ten thousand dollars in legal expenses, undergo a psychiatric examination, and pay fifty thousand dollars to the Special Olympics Oregon charity. She risked going to prison for five years. And then as a result of her guilty plea, she had to withdraw from the world championships. For life, right? Wasn't she like banned for life? Oh, she was until uh, the president got hit with a crowbar and then they let her back in, I think. I mean, she came out on top of this, though, right? So Phil Knight, CEO of Nike, donated $25,000 towards her legal fees. And she made approximately $600,000 from an inside edition deal. Yeah, she's done pretty well. It's almost like the Lance Armstrong thing. How he got so many like documentaries, interviews. He got so much money by ad- admitting guilt to what he had done over the time that it may have worked out for him. Oh, it definitely didn't work out for Lance Armstrong. <laughs> have you seen what his life looks like now? <laughs> I actually him. haven't seen or heard from him no, in years. There was that ESPN documentary on him uh, like a year ago or 18 months ago, the two-part documentary from ESPN. I mean, his life is okay now, but it's definitely not what it was. Plus, I mean, I think Lance Armstrong is definitely a scumbag and did some pretty horrible things over the course of the cheating but big difference between a kind of conspiracy to take steroids and just beating someone up. It's not <laughs> quite the same thing. But I still think I'm almost, po- at least her side of the story was she wasn't the one who orchestrated it. It was her manager. And she kind of, she said she had heard something, you know, that something might happen, but she wasn't the one who said, I want you to go do this. At least that's what I, Tanya, taught me. 
Whereas Lance Armstrong, he was definitely the one orchestrating that. So she says that she sticks to her original statement that she had no prior knowledge of the planned assault. But basically, most investigations conclude that she knew more than she admits. Who knows? I'm going to guess she knows. She does. More. She knows. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's insane. Otherwise, it's it's crazier to imagine that the that her management did it without her. That's even crazier. But the Lance Armstrong thing, he's just a scumbag in terms of how he treated certain people who were then working with him and stuff. And he had no loyalty. But at the same time, I'm not as judgmental because definitely everyone within cycling in that period in time was cheating and he just did it the most ruthlessly. You just don't judge because you loved your yellow bracelet. No. <laughs> I wasn't a big live strong person. I kind of hated that movement. Of course I you also, did. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't really like... I actually have liked Lance Armstrong more when it was confirmed he was a villain. That made him a much more appealing character to me. Of course you did. Because <laughs> up until that moment, what I hated was you obviously had people within France who were adamant that he was cheating. And you had the Americans who were adamant that there's no way he was cheating. And I think any neutral was like, well, everyone in cycling is cheating. So he's definitely cheating. And I think I hated how much, how personally a lot of Americans who got into cycling as a result of Lance Armstrong, this is going to really fuel your dad's theory that I hate America, but took it that like they became very protective of Lance Armstrong, which you have seen a little bit with British cyclists and British cycling fans over the past few years. I am sure that some of the cyclists who have won the Tour de France that are British have cheated. I mean, I just assume still that all cyclists cheat. They just do it in new and smarter ways at each moment in time. But, I mean, I think Bradley Wiggins is kind of the most suspicious because he, like, won and then disappeared. I think that was the smart move on his part. He's like, I'll win it once, and I'll just, I'm gone. Like, no one bother me anymore. I can stay forever. Anyone can win it once, but no one can win it six years in a row without doping. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone can win it once. I don't think anyone could win it at all without doping. But I think, you know, Lance Armstrong, ultimately the thing that got him caught, right, was coming back. If he hadn't come back, he would have been fine. And then it was coming back. And then at the same time, coming back with the same kind of mentality that he had left with and then not allowing former teammates to rejoin the U.S. Postal Service team, which was what ultimately got people to turn on him. He did everything right in terms of like creating that mafia mentality of sort of you're either with us or against us, but you also have to have that ma mafia mentality of you might go to prison for us and when you come out, we'll take care of you. And for him, it was like when you come out, I want nothing to do. <laughs> you're going to go to prison, not say a word, and then you're going to be screwed once you get out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's when you're going to get enemies. <laughs> that's a big mistake. He's obviously never watched like Goodfellas. <laughs> Wasn't That's a all he needed to fan. do when he could. <laughs> no, he could have got away with it. He just needed to pay a little bit more attention to how you manage your your mob. Now, speaking of, I guess, other little controversies, there's been a big backlash to Roy Keane's comments that were directed at Harry Maguire at the weekend, after Harry Maguire scored England's opening goal against Albania on Friday, and then proceeded to celebrate by 
putting his hands to his ears in a gesture that was interpreted as being a response to the criticism that he has received for his poor defending for Manchester United over the past several weeks. Roy Keane. Roy Keane is a caricature of himself, and he is there to play the grumpy old man and to just say that everyone does things wrong. That's what he's there for. So I'm not going to kind of be too critical of him for doing that. I do think that the overall statement he made in that scoring a goal against Albania does not answer any of the criticism that has been leveled at you for not knowing how to defend in the Premier League is fair. Like you have not silenced your critics by doing something that is fundamentally unrelated to what they are being critical of you for. Well, well, Eddie, what if you then go score the opening goal against San Marino as well? Yeah, come on, Eddie. He's followed (laughs) it up. He's followed it up with a performance. Yeah. What? I can't hear you. What? Nothing to say, Eddie? That's what I thought. (laughs) It would be a bit like... It would be like a bit like a, a kicker in the NFL missing like nine straight field goals, but then on a kickoff, just nailing it for a massive touchback, just like smacking it into the through the end zone and then just turning around and just there. Oh, where's, where's the criticism now, boys? I know I've missed nine extra points and seven field goals, but that was a great touchback. Uh, I think you're doing a disservice. I mean, the cauldron that he was in tonight of 6,600 San Marino fans, which surprised me with an attendance of that, that kind of height. Is that 90% of their population? <laughs> it might well be. Everyone who was physically able to go to the match go? <laughs> it is one-sixth of their population. That's insane. So, I mean, you know... <laughs> It's it's a fairly impressive turnout, you know. When's the last time England had 10 million people showing up for a football match? Just day? Wembley completely congested. <laughs> oh, traffic's going to be a bitch getting out of here. <laughs> but the thing is, like, I understand the, the gesture with the ears is like, you know, silencing. And it, it, to be honest, it is. But hasn't Roy Keane just been the person that's made it that as well? Like, you don't know why Maguire did it, or has, has he come out and I've missed news? He's basically said there was no real intent behind it, that he scored a goal, and it was kind of just how he reacted to scoring a goal. You kind of don't expect to score, and you don't really plan for it if you're him, and just got caught up in the moment and did a celebration. And it's not like it's a particularly unique one, right? But Now, if, there, if, if that was a match where there was an intense fan base he easily probably could have gotten away with it with being, you know, oh, the fans were super unruly and I scored and was giving it to them to shut up. But I don't know if Albania has quite the the, well, the cult following of fans that is giving him the business the entire match. But did he go off to the Albanian fans doing it? Because obviously there was the racism, well, allegations. I mean, Albania were found guilty of it the last time England played in Albania. So if he had gone off to the away fans and done that, it would have been like, okay, I understand the gesture at least of like, you know, silencing them very quickly. I think, I, he had a Roy, he had I think he had a Roy Keane blow-up doll he went up to. He had someone hold it up and he did it. But I don't know. I don't know if that means he anything. Direct, <laughs> I don't know if that he actually means directly towards. He didn't mean he directly just, towards yeah. the ITV box. <laughs> someone just randomly had you, a Roy come Keane blow-up. I mean, don't don't just read walks, too much into it, Sam. <laughs> yeah, just goes up to the ITV box, starts doing the Hulk Hogan with the ears. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Suplexes him off the, off the press box. <laughs> 
off the top rope. <laughs> so speaking of Roy Keane, this Thursday, I went to a brewery that was having Ted Lasso trivia night. Now, I didn't go because of it, but we were there. Unfortunately, I was at a table with seven people and I was the only one who had seen Ted Lasso, which actually slightly surprised me considering during the pandemic, I feel a lot of people were watching it, but no one had seen it. I had told everyone to go home and watch it because it's worth watching season one. I said, step one, go and watch it. But that didn't help for trivia night. So we didn't stay and I only heard one of the questions. And what was funny was there were people in the pub definitely there because of Ted Lasso trivia. Like you had the stereotypical kid who came in with the England kit on, you know, like walking in like, oh, this guy knows. He knows European football. Look out. You know, then you had another. Did anyone have did anyone have an AFC Richmond kit on? One person had an AFC Richmond shirt on, not a kit. Nice. nice. Um, And then there was like a family that came in with probably I would say a 16 year old, a 14 year old and, and a mother. And you could tell like they were there because they had all watched Ted Lasso and really liked it. So the first, they actually sat right behind us and they were like really getting excited. And the first question that we heard before we left was um, the character Roy Kent is loosely based off of this premier, former premier league player. And I was like, Oh, that's easy. And I turn around and these people had no idea. So I went up to them like right before I left. I was like, do you guys know this one? They were like, no, like we, th- we came here. We thought we did so well. We don't know the first question. And I was like, all right, I'll help you out. And I gave them the answer. And they were like super excited and pumped. They're like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm 100%. Don't worry. We've talked about it like a dozen times. So I didn't get any of the questions, but I will go back because I go to this place regularly and I'll get the question list. And then once I get them, I can quiz you guys a little bit and see how well we would have done. But based off of that question, I think we would have done well. <laughs> based off of one question. I think, I think we would have won the quiz. I think so too. I, I think the combination of overall football knowledge, which if they're going to have questions that kind of draw on things that aren't necessarily explicitly said within the show, which is definitely you're in trouble, right? If you're just a Ted Lasso fan, but you don't follow football overall. But also, I mean, I can remember everything from Ted Lasso. Yeah. I feel like in my head, I feel like I can remember score lines. <laughs> I can remember who scored goals. You know, I think I'd be all right if, there. If it were the three of us walking in there, I would put, I would have put our odds as one to four favorites. How many? That's pretty how many teams? <laughs> how many teams were that? There were six or seven teams there, I think. All right. Well, as long as Frank, oh, okay. as long as Frank doesn't fair. go to other tables and give them answers like he did this time, <laughs> yeah. I think we've got a good show. <laughs> but I'll, I'll get the questions and and I'll quiz us and see how well we would have done. But the group I was with, we then started discussing what shows they would be good at, um, and it was I was with my lab, and and my lab is all female, but one. So their big one was Gilmore Girls. Grey's Anatomy, Friends, which I, besides Friends, I think I could do decent at. The other two, no way. What one would you think you could do best at? What would Because I said my show would definitely be The Office. 
without a doubt, or Parks and Rec. Either one of those. I've watched those through at least 15 times through. So those I would think I would have a really good shot. Maybe even Shit's Creek, because I've watched a lot of Shit's Creek lately. So I think I could be decent at that one as well. I, at the moment, I would probably pick Ted Lasso because it's the show I've watched <laughs> and thought about the most. You've really missed this opportunity then, Eddie. <laughs> you should have flew in. Because <laughs> every other show I really like, there's a possibility that the quiz, hey, I need to rewatch the show. And I don't want to rewatch TV shows. I rewatch YouTube clips, right? As we've discussed in the past. So like The Wire, which is a show I feel like I know really well, but I would need to rewatch the series, the full series, because there's going to be subplots and minor characters where you just don't really remember them, which is the reason why I like watching YouTube clips. I'd take, I'd take Family Guy. If, if that's, if that would be okay. Like... <laughs> Yeah, why wouldn't it be okay? <laughs> I don't know. Just like this is a hypothetical. It's an animated it thing. It's only twenty minutes. Like I don't know if there would be a like a length that it needs to be. But I think that's ambitious because that's a lot. It's of a episodes. lot of episodes, but I and it's a random. It. Sh- it's a random show where you could have just random questions. You know, like who did Peter fight in this episode where they were doing this or that? You know, a like, chicken. Yeah, the answer is always chicken, but. <laughs> But I would pick it. Speaking of my it, speaking of my YouTube uh, rabbit holes, though, I went down an interesting one today, and it got me thinking. So I watched this whole YouTube video about anti-vaxxing. Uh, yes, kiss chase. Yeah, got me British about... kiss chase. <laughs> Can we make that the new reality TV show? We combine <laughs> like Love Island with Tag. <laughs> Do we get Harvey Weinstein as the producer? No, Harvey Weinstein's the one doing the kiss chase. (laughs) He'd never win. He's way too fat and slow. He's like, it's like the chase. He's he's like like the show, the the quiz show, and a new a new like quiz master comes in, and and like the ultimate boss is Harvey Weinstein. Man, we are just being insensitive on multiple fronts this episode. We we definitely need no, to disclaim we're just saying in jest here. <laughs> uh, but getting back on track for my YouTube rabbit hole, I watched this whole video about the career of Terrence Gore, who is a current Major League Baseball player. So his career so far, I think he's 31 years old. But the interesting thing about him is, and indeed, where would this career rank in terms of what you would take so he's played in the majors, I think, for seven seasons, although mostly not played. He's only made – he's only had 67 at-bats over the course of those seven seasons, but he has won three World Series. Seasons, But he has won three World Series. So where does that rank? Seasons. But he has won three World Series on from result. You know, in the late stages of a game and have to do something important. His stat line is 67 at bats, 32 runs, 15 hits, two two base hits, one triple, one RBI, 40 stolen bases but three World Series rings. I mean, 
to an extent, your skill set, even though it's very particular and niche, is still being built around, right? So it's kind of a good career in that sense that he is still clearly important to the team and it's not that... I don't know if I'm, what I'm saying is right, but it just feels like it's not just like a... I guess it would almost be a little bit like a super sub in kind of football. In in terms, if you come on for a specific reason, even like Solskjaer was kind of known for that, but I guess that's the equivalent, right? Uh, you know, super subs aren't necessarily the ones that are going to be... They're going to be the ones that will be remembered because they come on for five minutes and turn a game around. But actually, when you look at their impact over the course of their career, it might not be as dramatic. I guess that's the difference, though, because coming on as a pinch runner is and stealing a crucial base or being really fast so the run gets driven in that wins the World Series, even if that's the perfect scenario, it's not as memorable as being... Solskjaer scoring a goal in the Champions League final as a substitute. Like people will remember other moments. Whilst diehard fans will definitely remember you fondly, it's not as if you're gonna have. I mean, I think the only time I can really think of that scenario really playing out, I know in the 2004 Yankees Red Sox, a lot of people think at that turning point is when I can't even remember who the Red Sox player was, but stole a base came on as a pinch runner and stole second. But, and I know Red Red Sox fans think of him really fondly, but fundamentally you're, you're really needing diehard baseball fans to have any idea who you are. And how much money has he made? So, over the course of his career, he's basically making an average of $500,000 a year. So actually, not even that much. No, but not bad, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not bad. But in, no, in someone but not who's bad, right? won three World Series, right? You think they're making more than that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know where that would rate on. So say his career earnings at the moment are three million dollars. How many? At what point would you trade? Like, would, would I, if I offered you $3 million and three World Series rings versus zero World Series rings and $30 million, do you take the player who's earned the $30 million? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I think really at the end of the day, I could care less about winning if I were a professional athlete. They can say all they want that they care so much about winning a Super it, If you're at the end of your career and you've had a good career and that's, the thing that's eluded you, your career, then I truly believe that they do care about winning the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup, things like that. But if you're going into the NFL as a rookie and someone says, what are you most concerned about? They're lying to you when they say, I want to win a championship. They would just want to be successful, be a good at whatever position they are and make a lot of money. But if you win early, do you then start looking at records, all-time records, and then that's going to no, I think you treat it like it's the monkey off your back. That would be my mentality a bit. But the only, the only, I mostly agree with you, Frank, where I would kind of disagree with you a little bit is I think if you are a legitimate superstar, so here we're talking about a player who's an also ran within major league circles. So he would almost certainly take more money over those. He'd certainly trade two of those World Series rings for a whole lot more money. You know, and be like, I get to retire with one. I did it once. No one can tell me I don't know what it's like to win one. But I think 
if you come into the league, any league, with really serious expectations that you are going to be a generational superstar, I think there your focus has to be on winning. Because it haunts you a little bit. Like Charles Barkley, right? He will forever be tarnished with the fact that he did not win an NBA title. Made tons of money, great post-playing career. You know, life is great. And I don't think it keeps him awake at night. But he does have that, the fact that he gets to sit on panels with Shaq, who every time just goes to say to him, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You never won one. And that kind of has to hurt to a certain extent. And that worse players than you. I mean, he sits next to Kenny Anderson. And like Kenny Anderson, Anderson by NBA standards, right? was just an okay player on a couple of pretty good teams. Who gets to say, hey, I won a couple NBA titles. You've never won one. Yeah, I mean, I think a case can be made for truly big superstars. You know, because that does kind of define it. But at the end of the day, I don't think Barkley's losing much sleep in his massive mansion with his luxury lifestyle. I don't think he's going to bed thinking, God damn it, why didn't I win an NBA championship? <laughs> the only reason why I will disagree with you is there are moments from my... Because you slept with Charles Barkley and you know... <laughs> oh, he was restless. He was tossing and turning all night. But no... The only reason I would disagree with you, and I would bet you this is still the case for you, I think back on my own sporting career, which obviously did not involve professional sports. There are, and I'm happy that I won things over the course of that career that I'm very proud of, but there are moments that still haunt me to this day that every once in a while I can get sucked back into the feeling of like, why did I mess that up? Why did I... I can remember one particular volley in tennis. And I would say 20 times a year, I think back on that volley. And that <laughs> might be crazy. That might be 30 times might be, and I'm not saying it's hours and I'm getting thrown into deep depression, but I might be watching a tennis match and it looks similar to the one I missed or just somehow it comes up in my thought process. And I think, God, why? Because the, the the real thing that haunts me about it is it was definitely going long, and I I didn't my instinct <laughs> was it was PTSD here. <laughs> the way he's... Like, I knew it was going long. I still went for it anyway because I didn't want to run the risk, and then I missed the volley, and it was definitely. And when I went off, our coach and all the fans watching and stuff were like, "Why did you?" It was going long. I was like, I, I know, but I messed up. <laughs> like that to that to this day, that that thought comes into my mind. How no, you I, I agree with you. I wasn't in the final of Wimbledon. I don't know how much that would bother me if that was my one appearance in the final of Wimbledon. It would probably be every day. Yeah, I agree with you there. I, I second guess it too. Like I always second guess why you went to that Greek tennis tournament. I think back on that story several times a year. So you're right. I do think back on your, your athletic career. <laughs> I, I have I have new information relating to that that I cannot share on the podcast, but as soon as we're oh. done recording. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I think we just wrap it up here then. <laughs> just so we... Yeah, I can't I can't focus anymore until I hear this new information. Because <laughs> like I said, I think three or four times a year about your story at that Greek tennis tournament. <laughs>
<laughs> Maybe one day that will get told on the podcast, but I don't know if it'll ever get told. Uh, that will have to get told one day. Maybe one day. It I'll is too good of a story to not share. And I know it's like, it's not a good story for you, but now that so much time has passed and in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter in your life. It is a great story. We'll set a, I'll let you and Sam set a target as like a podcast achievement. And if we hit a certain milestone that you two decide on, and it can't be something we're right about to hit, right? It's going to be like a genuine milestone. We hit that, I'll tell the story. How about that? Okay, deal. And then Sam can tell the story when he shit himself playing soccer. <laughs> what is he, Gary Lineker? <laughs> I learn off the greats. Yeah. But no. Anything else then from the from the weekend? Well, we had the, the Cricket World Cup finals. Well, the T20 finals. I guess we should probably wrap. We should wrap a, up with that, yeah. A disappointing England not making it to the finals. And then I thought a, a, a pretty exciting finals. Um, not exciting in the sense that it went down to the last over, but I think it was a good score was put up and a good chase. You know, it's, it's still fun to watch. I mean, and we talked off air. My feeling, you know, when they put up the score that they did, Eddie had said that he was pretty comfortable. He felt comfortable that New Zealand could could hold it. And I don't I just have that feeling when I watch a T20 that no matter what the score is, the team that's chasing is always going to chase it if they're a good team. And you know, maybe that's just recent in this tournament cuz that that's what happened almost most of the tournament, but when you have a good team like that, I always feel the team will chase it. So I mean, there's definitely an advantage to batting second. Uh, I, even on difficult pitches, I never really understand why a team wants to ever bat first. I know that there's there's moments where between day-night games or weather conditions that are predicted to change, there's moments when you'd say that it will get m- more difficult to bat later in the day. I still think it's always a huge advantage to know what you're chasing. The only time when that isn't the case is when a team puts up a gigantic total. If you've got to chase 230 and then from ball one, you know, right, if we're not scoring 10 plus and over, we're falling behind in the run rate. And then if you're, you know, nine without loss after two overs, you really start to feel that pressure to start hitting boundaries. That's the only moment you really see it. But I do agree with you. I mean, I'm in this tournament. So if you look at this one, it was very much a case of win the toss, bowl first, win the match. So there were 24 matches played between full member nations so test playing nations because you kind of want to throw out you know it's kind of irrelevant whether or not india could beat namibia when namibia bowled first right and it's not a good judge sort of judgment of, of what the conditions were but of the 24 matches that were played by those 19 were won by the team chasing and 16 of them were won by the team that won the toss so you're really looking at a situation where you kind of won the match at the toss, which it's a shame for you want to create cricket tournaments, even if there is that consistent advantage in knowing what the total is you got to chase down. You don't want to be in a situation where the match is decided half an hour before the first bowl is bowled. Bowl is bowled. 
yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty exciting to watch Australia kind of chase it and and be consistent, and especially when they had that uh, wicket early on, and you kind of thought, oh, this could be this could be the start of it, and then Warner kind of just settled it in, and then uh, Marsh just dominated and kind of kept the score going. Yeah, but it was it was it was good. Big. Big controversy too with Warner event eventually picking up player of the tournament with pissing off everyone in the subcontinent who were annoyed that uh, Babarazam, who finished with more runs, I think around 30 more runs, even though he played a match less than Warner did. People being really annoyed then Warner, but I get it. I feel like if you, in particular, play the match-winning innings in the final, and it sucks for Pakistan because he wasn't the reason why they lost that match in the semis because he had a good semifinal performance as well. But I do sort of understand that it's a little bit like MVP awards in the U.S., where it kind of go you got to win, you got to be on the winning team to pick it up, and at least being on the winning team is adding an extra 20 percent in your favor. Yeah. I would say if if Warner was the one who had gone out in that final and it were reversed, then I could see it. But I felt like watching that he he was the one who really kept him in it. I I know everyone was talking about how Marsh came in and was you know hitting boundaries and things like that. But there's something too when you know you're 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 starting the match and the one guy goes out quick and you kind of have to hold it down and kind of get back in line. And he did a really good job of that, of kind of getting them back into to some rhythm and to some form and, and kind of lasting it out where, you know, he didn't have the highest run total, but for me, it felt like he was the one that got them back on track and really just pushed them through when it could have been tough. So I think that's got to add to that, to that award. Yeah. And I think that concept which you're kind of discussing is like the idea of anchoring and innings and, I think you've, we've seen the evolution of Warner as a player, whereas earlier on in his career, he was coming out at 100 miles an hour every time, and there was that was it. How, how long he was going to be able to smash fours and sixes, and if he was in for 10, in, 10 overs, it was game over. But if it wasn't working, he wasn't going to change the way he played. Like Chris Gale. Chris Gale's done that his entire career. Chris Gale knows there's never a moment in Chris Gale's career where everything's to himself it's a little bit tough right now and we've lost a couple of wickets. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to just going to defend a couple balls and uh, we'll reassess in three overs time, but it's key that we just slowly build a partnership now and get a bit of stability. Chris Gale never thinks like that. And I think you see it in David Warner's evolution that he has introduced that. And I think then when you look at the England team, that's the kind of role that Joss Butler has been able to develop as well, which is, yes, for the most part, you think of him as this devastating attacking player, but like his innings against Sri Lanka, right, where he scored the slowest 50 by an England player in T20 cricket and then followed it up with, I think, the fastest second half of an innings by an England player. And it's that ability to change speeds based on what the situation of the game is. That's when, even in a a match that's only 20 overs, and I think it's easy for teams to feel that if 20 overs is, is really short, but it's a lot longer than you can kind of, feel like it is when you're caught up in the moment 
Yeah, there's definitely still tactics to it. But you know what? It's kind of like well done Australia because at the start of this tournament, they were, what was it, bowled out for 62 against Bangladesh. They had lost like five in a row. They got thrashed by England in the group stage. I didn't really expect it, but we, we spoke about kind of feeling kind of better for New Zealand in terms of like, I just feel for them in a much more sympathetic way as just being a nice team. But it's unfortunate for them that they've lost all three finals for the test, the T20 and the one and the ODI. Um, so yeah, pretty unfortunate for them. But uh, like you say, they're a consistently good team. So I'm sure there won't be a problem seeing them again. Well, I mean, I'm sure they'll make more finals. They just don't know. I don't know if they're going to win them. They would have... Well, look, if, if, if this were England or Australia or India doing what New Zealand are doing, they'd be facing a lot more criticism. They're, they're kind of, they fall into this lovable losers category where we do look on, like Kane Williamson, they lose that match, and he is just still the sportsmanship that he showed as, a, as losing again in a final, you know, congratulating all the Australians, many of whom, in particular David Warner, who he plays alongside in the IPL, so they obviously get along well. And he went up to congratulate Warner on his innings and also being awarded player of the tournament and stuff. Everything they do just shows class. But at the same time, if they were a bigger nation, not that they're a small cricketing nation by any stretch of the imagination, but like a bigger nation in terms of the pressure that they've experienced, I think people would be treating them a lot differently. If this were England losing three finals in a row, questions would be asked about, well, why are you, why are you kind of choking at the final staff? Whereas with New Zealand, it's like, oh, just New Zealand, these great guys, they turn up and even when they lose, they're still great guys. It's amazing. And they are, but you do need to win at some point. A real class of losers. (laughs) I mean, they seem genuinely, and Australia definitely weren't the best team in the tournament. You know, so it's one of those, they've won the tournament and they are probably the fifth best T20. And it's really weird, right? Because India and New Zealand are starting a T20 series, I think, on Thursday. So you've kind of finished the World Cup and then you're <laughs> right into this this series between, you know, two of the best teams in the world. So that's going to be an interesting to see what a kind of hangover New Zealand might have. I mean, it's going to be really upsetting for New Zealand if now in their first match they, you know, score 220 runs and bowl India out for 60. That's going to be a little bit frustrating for them. Yeah, but. and obviously I, I know that some of the format changes, some of the players change, but obviously England are going into the ashes against Australia in, what, 24, 25 days' time? Uh, so that might be a bit dangerous. That is going to be... It's going to be a bit of a bloodbath. Yeah. You could call it a thromping. Oh, that's going to be a thromping. That's going to be unpleasant viewing. <laughs> I remember there's lots of times where I've stayed up through the night to watch Ashes, Ashes test matches. I do not think this is going to be a winter where that is the case for me. It's going to be very unpleasant viewing as an as an England supporter, I think. Maybe they'll prove us wrong, but I when you look at that Australian team kind of riding a little bit of a high. Again, not all the same players, but there's a decent overlap. And then an England team particularly missing Joffre Archer going into the ashes who was going to be perhaps a, dis- a difference maker on very flat pitches where just raw pace is the only thing that can get people unstuck is is roy on and the test match England. team no i don't no. think so at least you're not losing him then no 
And also, I mean, the real shame too, right, for New Zealand was Conway missing out oh, on the final. Breaking his hand. Circumstances, breaking his hand when he punched his bat in frustration after he got out against England. I do not know how you punch a bat you're holding with a, with a glove on and break a, break a bone in your hand. You must punch that bat so hard. The way he punches it as well is exactly where the most padding is as well. Like he punches straight down from his knuckle. There's no reason you should be breaking your hand with that. It's, it is strange. You're right. Speaking of that, did you see Ty Montgomery on the Saints when he went to catch the ball and broke his pinky and they showed it on air and it was in completely the wrong direction? Just just like straight up 90 degrees in the wrong direction. And then you just see him kind of, it was crazy. He, it didn't even seem to phase him. He kind of just like held up his hand and slowly walked to the sidelines as to say like, all right, I need to take this play off. Look at my hand. It's going the wrong way. It was pretty gruesome. He came back in too. <laughs> I was, I always admire NFL and rugby players, the way they deal with finger injuries, just dislocations and stuff. And it's just a great, well, worst case scenario, tape it to the other finger and I'll just go back in and deal with it. I mean, even actually in the Cricket World Cup, there was um, a player, I can't remember who it was, who shouldn't have been playing in the tournament was, oh, it was, I think it was actually the Namibian captain, I think, who broke, who badly broke a finger and required surgery and was basically like, I'm not missing out on the World Cup. So just tape it to another finger and I'll, I'll bat and I'll try and field and do whatever I can, but I'm not missing out on the World Cup. And I guess it's the final anecdote from the weekend. Did you see uh, Cam Newton's explanation of why he shouted, I'm back after he scored his touchdown? I don't know. I asked that question. He said, uh, well, at this time last week, I was eating a bowl of cereal. You feel me? And I do think that was, it is a kind of an interesting transformation in his life from looking like his NFL career kind of might have been over to suddenly being back as the starter of a, team that could conceivably even well is he going to be the starter going forward because he only he only played in a few plays what was crazy first play in he scored a touchdown and then i think third play in he scored a touchdown as well ran one and then threw one or maybe it was the second second it was one first and second yeah yeah his first his first two plays resulted in touchdowns yeah he's gonna have to be the star you don't pay that guy that much to have him come in seven plays a game I'll admire him. I think the real, because you see also the shots of the sideline where he's very clearly instantly become a leader and stuff. So balancing how, and look, when they're winning, when you're demolishing the Cardinals, a good team, it's easy to just be saying, we're going to use him as a, as a special, like a secret weapon, but in very specific circumstances. But as soon as a game starts to go the wrong way, it's a little bit like the pressure Drew Brees felt towards the end of his career, where when you have a quarterback who does something very different, yes, you can bring him in situational circumstances when things are going well, but when you're having a bad game, well, why aren't you bringing him in more? Yeah, anything else from the weekend? Nope, nothing from me. All right, then I guess I'll uh, talk to you boys later. Cheerio.